Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another week. This is the Live Life Aggressively Show. This is Sincere Hogan. Got Mike Mall on the other side. And uh, I know some of you have been wondering, where have they been? Well, I can tell you who hasn't been wondering where we've been. Our subscribers on Patreon. They know where we've been <laughs> because they've had their episode. And they are pretty much happy as a fat kid with cake right now <laughs> with that episode. So they, they, a lot of good feedback, man, with the subscriber model that's going on. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. People should definitely check out the last episode we did on joint health supplements, and you got into some motivational stuff. So they definitely need to subscribe now to get over to that. Go over to Patreon slash LLA Podcast, right? Isn't that the is that the link? Yeah, Patreon.com slash LLA Podcast, exactly. And yep. and on oh, that little box, that 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 dollar that's Patreon's doing has nothing to do with us. Go ahead and change that to, to five, or you can go ahead and put some zeros behind that one. Okay, so you know I know it gets confusing for first-time Patreon like members, and they see that and they think, oh, okay. So yeah, come on, folks. So that's how you do that. Just go to that box, hit five dollars, put ten dollars, put a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars. Hey, we'll take that too. That makes you an executive producer when you get to that status. But um, yeah, so Patreon.com/slash LLA Podcast. Become a subscriber, and twice a month. At least twice a month, you'll get privy to subscriber-only episodes, premium episodes, where we pretty much cover a variety of topics. So there you go. You can go do that right now while you listen to this. Yeah, and then make sure to use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off all of our products on our respective websites. Yeah, we have a great guest. He's been on the show before. He has the same background as Jack Bauer, yet he looks like John Locke from the show Lost. <laughs> That's Mike Gillette. How you doing? <laughs> hey, Mike. How's it going? That might be the best intro for you ever, huh? I think you should be introduced that way at every well, event you I, speak at. What I appreciate is that it's briefer <laughs> than most of the ones I get. So, you know, we can just jump it right in. It gets to the point, it. too. It kind of hits it kind of hits all the categories that you want. Yeah. Here. Well, listen, let's Absolutely. talk about training this time, because last okay. time you were on, we went off on a couple of tangents. We didn't really get into your training system, and you have a lot of good information. What is, I mean, what, what's the focus right now? What are you working on? Well, the um, the focus for me is based on a sort of a, a template that I like to follow, and the template sort of evolved around some of the different types of sort of, you know, functional objectives I have for myself. So, you know, like probably a lot of the people who listen, you know, it, it matters to me to be strong. You know, I, I want to be as as strong as I possibly can. And you know, one of the things I do as sort of a, uh, you know, personal calibration is uh, do feats of strength or, you know, mind-body strength, however you'd care to uh, describe those. And, uh you know, when you're you're bending steel, that type of thing, it's it's very helpful to be really really strong. So I cultivate that uh, as a primary focus. But as a uh, as a more mature trainer, I'm presently 54 years old. I, I do have to acknowledge the passage of time, and I do have to accommodate uh, you know changes or, or adjustments that naturally occur. As uh, I continue to train hard, but you know, uh, I continue to age every day as well. So uh, I didn't really think about how it was that I was training until uh, a few years ago. And a few years ago, I launched a, a, an info product. 
it had a really uh, corny name that uh, someone besides me came up with, but it's called the Savage Strength Training Program. And uh, when it hit the market and and, my visibility increased a little bit, I started fielding questions. One of the most recurring questions, uh, and probably because the the whole program was promoted with a, a montage video of me just doing a bunch of feats of strength, crazy stuff, bending this and breaking that and whatnot. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Um, so the, the recurring question was, is this course, is this how you train? And the, the course itself, not to you know give away any trade secrets, but it's primarily a five-by-five five, uh, structure, which I certainly didn't come up with, but Probably the name most associated with that would be Bill Starr. Now, some of the variations of the program are are some tweaks that I came up with, and many of the more unusual exercises are examples of things that are you know sort of you know unique to me or people who train like me. But the structure was just basically a a fairly conventional uh, you know raw strength building uh, process. And as I thought about that question, well, how is it that I do train, I actually started arriving at a template. That template is something I call a four-dimensional strength protocol. And I have to start off with a disclaimer, I know there aren't four dimensions, okay? It's just an egg. So within that uh, <laughs> within that structure, I mean, you know, if we look at what the body does, you know, it, it kind of it pulls on things and it, it pushes on things and it folds in half and uh, the legs push. And if we want to get a little bit more artful in describing that, you know, we can talk about the categories of movement like horizontal pushing, vertical pushing, horizontal pulling, vertical pulling, squatting, trunk flexion, trunk extension. You know, we can get more granular than that, but I mean, that that's a good start. So those uh, those categories of movements are uh, are fairly universal, and those are part of what I tend to train. And I just refer to that dimension of strength as linear strength, and linear simply refers to the movements. You know, if we go to any commercial gym, guys, we're going to find machines that basically uh, allow resistance to manifest along a linear path. But linear strength is just you know one piece of the puzzle. So then uh, dimension two is something that I refer to as helical strength, you know, H-E-L-I-C-A-L. And that's simply strength which is expressed through helix-based movements or movements which proceed along an arcing as opposed to a linear path. Now, Mike, I know you're a kettlebell guy, and the staple exercise in in that world is what? It's the swing. So there's probably your penultimate, you know, helical movement. So anything that uh, moves along an arc, which could be, you know, a kettlebell swing, if you look at a lot of the rotational drills that are performed with sandbags or, or med balls or even some of the, the limb exercises uh, that you might perform with, say, uh, Indian clubs, are all examples of manifesting helical strength. Does that make sense so far? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So then what I refer to as dimension three is dynamic strength. Now, that's not necessarily a a movement category so much as it is a a velocity or a velocity-based category. So any exercise where speed generation is integral to the execution of that exercise, that's a velocity-based movement. 
So if there's jumping or throwing or swinging a load at speed, there's dynamic strength. And, of course, you know, our power development exercises generally are going to fit within dynamic strength or dimension three. And, you know, a lot of people train pieces of these, but the last one, dimension four, is the one that doesn't show up quite so much. And that's what I refer to as positional strength. And positional strength is what's postural in nature rather than movement-oriented. So you can see it in either suspended or gravity-based positions. So maybe the visual, most visual example of that would be if you're watching men's gymnastics and you watch a, a guy on the rings performing an iron cross. You know, he's holding himself between the rings. Uh, he's His arms are uh, parallel with the floor. His body's perpendicular to the arms. Nothing is actually moving, but the amount of, you know, muscular tension being generated is through the roof. So it's important for me, uh, particularly with respect to uh, positional strength, because when you do steel bending, you find yourself in a lot of unusual positions that really aren't mimicked anywhere within the, the weightlifting repertoire. So through incorporating those four aspects of those four categories, or what I call four dimensions, it's working within those and paying attention to all of them and how I can make them fit together, you know, in some sort of a logical way, week to week, month to month. That is how I've been training for probably the last eight or nine years. Can you give us an example of some of those velocity moves? Well, yeah, anything in my case, um, I don't do a lot of, uh, you know, Olympic lifts. Uh, primarily because uh, I've got some joint issues that make uh, holding the bar in those positions kind of problematic. So I like to use uh, kettlebells or sandbags, and I'll do a lot of just, you know, throwing, you know, as as hard, as fast, you know, overhead throws, you know, underhand, you know, hikes, uh, rotational work, just with uh, increasing loads as I can. I don't do uh, conventional kettlebell swings all that much. I do have an apparatus that uh, I can load with plates, and I do a shortened arc swing, but with you know heavier, like you know you know 200 200 plus, uh, just to get the, um, the the same kind of uh, muscle recruitment. But um, I, what's, I what's the reasoning more... for that? Is do you find that? Kettlebell swing is problematic for you? What's the reasoning for it, that? It's ever since I broke my back, which was a long time ago, there are certain positions yeah. I find that a lot of conventional, some great exercises will put me in that are just uncomfortable. And right. I find that uh, high repetition kettlebell swings are not good for me. Um, I, I'll, I'll start uh, getting some back pain uh, from that, and then I have to lay off of it. So I've just kind of learned to work around. And you know, probably one of my uh, uh, best uh, gifts within this training realm is that I've developed a lot of workarounds, you know, or alternative uh, ways to get the same basic, uh, you know, functions accomplished, but without, uh, you know, if if you have a limited toolbox and some of those tools aren't working for you, those tend to be the people who just stop training, you know, particularly right. when they get to be, you know, mid fifties. So uh, I try to pay attention to that and uh, kind of let my ego move to the side 
so that if I'm not doing certain things that I used to do with ease, I don't get freaked out about that so long as I've got, you know, some alternative means of achieving the same, you know, sort of physical outcomes. Even if I'm not doing the gee whiz cool guy exercises like I used to or that everyone else does. Right. Well, that's an important point because as you do train for a long period of time, there are going to be certain moves that are just not a fit anymore. Some people have a hard time with barbell deadlifts and that they have to transition to a trap bar deadlift would be one simple example. Some people have right. a hard time with the bench press and now they, they do dumbbell vert presses or incline dumbbell presses or over or you switch over to overhead presses. What do you, what in your toolbox works really well for improving overhead pressing strength? Is there a velocity exercise that carries over? Um for me, velocity wise and overhead work, uh my tool of choice is a sandbag. Uh, because mm-hmm. it allows me to use a neutral grip, which is just easier on my shoulders and elbows. And, right. um, you know, I can, you know, I can do whatever it is that I want to do with that particular piece of equipment, you know, somewhat indiscriminately as far as the device goes. You know, if I, if I want to throw it, I throw it. If I want to, you know, go so hard that, you know, I may end up dropping it from fatigue, I'll, I'll do that and not worry about it. So. You know, one of the, uh, the the things that allows me to train the way that I want to train is just having access to a lot of different implements. Yeah. yeah. So that's that 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 uh, that is my luxury, is having experimented with a lot of different pieces of gear. Um, I may have the Guinness World Record for most specialty bars in a garage owned by one person, and it's not because you know I'm a training snob or I'm so special, it's just because, you know, I'm beat up. And uh, right. some days I, I I need to just you know, kind of uh, move the paint around the, the structure. Yeah, yeah, it makes a point. It's funny how one just slight variations can make all the difference. You could have serious pain using a barbell for overhead pressing, yet a kettlebell press allows you to find a certain groove to stay in those those patterns yeah. where it's not painful. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I, I love uh, kettlebell presses uh, more than dumbbell presses, for example. Right, you know, so right. I mean that that that's a that's a pretty subtle distinction, but I can yeah. definitely feel it. Just the way the weight is off center mm-hmm. and the way you can find a certain groove makes all the difference. Yeah, and and I like I like uh, getting pulled in the wrong direction and having to fight back in. You know, which which basically just re- you know, reinforces me knowing where I want to have the weight at. Right, right. Yeah, I think when it comes down to no matter like what equipment that you have, as long as you stick it to the principles of that of the way your body moves, that's what matters most. And I think a lot of times people get too caught up in, oh, I got to have this to do that and do this to do that, as far as all these implements all these tools but yeah. not focus so much on oh i gotta have the right body mechanics to make this happen correctly you know so it's too much focusing too much on the thing instead of you know what the thing is going to do for the actual particular muscle or you know body part so yeah I think that, that's, that's a great we get point. caught up in you know, too much of nothing yeah, yeah the, the the you know the tool is the tool but it's you know how how we use the tool you know how how we sort of understand ourselves and and engage with the tool or interact with the tool that makes all the difference. You know, I'm, uh, I've recently moved and w- along with that move came a circumstance requiring me to, uh, frequently use a commercial gym, uh, to train in. And I haven't trained regularly in a commercial gym in years. 
You know, I had the luxury of, of training in a very well-appointed uh, garage gym. And the the biggest distraction I have in a commercial gym, and you're probably the same way, is wanting to fix all of the, you know, muscular malfeasance that's occurring in my presence. <laughs> There's just so much uh, physical illiteracy uh, on display. And uh, I've, I've learned the hard way not to, to do around. that, though. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, 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 learn, you, learn, you learn the hard way not to do that because if people yeah, don't you, know who you are, they're not very open to advice. Oh, so no. It's just yeah, exactly. You, you, you can't actually do it, but the benevolent part of you, you know, would like. Oh, absolutely. To, you know, so I mean, in Every your time. mind, whether you're, you're still doing what you're doing, but in your mind, you're <laughs> over there fixing like 20 different things. You know, it's exactly. Just, you look at the it's guy. It's just a really weird mental, uh, you know, process to sort of go through. It's like I've learned to kind of just kind of look down, you know, keep my earbuds in, and uh, and, and drive on. But well, I mean, what I like about working out tough. at a commercial gym is that you see what is going on out there. It's like these are the problems people have. It keeps you up to date. Sometimes when yeah. you're too isolated, yeah. you're always in your home gym. You're not. You're disconnected. So that's one of the benefits of being at a commercial yeah. gym. It's like, okay, this is what people are doing right now. These are the common problems people have. I, I think that uh, and some of those problems. Statement. I, mean, fix I think yeah. as a as a diagnostician, it's helpful. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think we all need to stay abreast of worst practices, and that's where you'll you'll see many of them play out. Um, you know, the one of the interesting things that I experience is. I go to this gym and they're nice. They let me bring stuff in. So I've got a duffel bag of, of Mike Gillette gear, you know, and then after 15 minutes of draping all of my stuff on top of the power rack, you know, you can start to draw a crowd. You know, what's that? Why are you doing this? And, you know, and the, all of those questions culminate with the inevitable. So how much you bench? And then, of course, you know, after they just witnessed, you know, this looking dude, you know, do weighted dips with, you know, some kind of excessive weight, and I say, oh, I don't bench, they're so disillusioned. Because for a moment, they thought I was strong, but if I don't bench, obviously, I'm And they just kind of wander back off to their leg extension. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to ask you about. You're trying, that was one of the things I was going to say. No, no. Earlier, earlier you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, that too. We'll get to that in a second. But oh, earlier good. you were talking about how a lot of people quit working out when they can't do certain moves, and I think that's one of the reasons why is because if, if they can't bench press anymore, they don't have an answer to that inevitable <laughs> question that they get when someone looks at you and you look like you work out. So they're like, "Well, I guess I just better not work out at all because no one's going to understand that me dipping five forty-five pound plates is actually more impressive or at least as impressive as a big bench press." So I think that's where a lot of people get disappointed is they work out for show too much. They work out so that when they're at some cocktail party, they can cleverly drop what their training, <laughs> what their, what the levels of greatness they think they've achieved with training are. Yeah. Or on, or on Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> and it, uh, that was a little bit of my story for a time. Uh, it was, uh, like, 2004, 2005, I was kind of going through what I thought might have, uh, might be sort of the, the last stages of, of me doing resistance training because I had just gotten to a point where everything hurts. And, 
you know, I, I was of a generation, you know, pre-internet where strength training was actually bodybuilding. You know, no, no one knew that there was a difference, you know, before the internet, there was no real access to like good uh, training information, physical culture information. Right. Uh, you know, I grew up or, or came of age, you know, on weeder publications and the five or six books that the mall bookstore sold, which were written by, you know, Bob Kennedy, um, and, and published by Weeder or Muscle Mag International. And all those yeah. books suck. And, <laughs> you know, they, they just basically, uh, you know, were, were products of a particular era, which was, you know, bodybuilders and the high volume sort of pharmacologically uh, assisted routines that were, you know, common within that community. Well, and I mean, I think they contain programs that no one ever did, right? You, well, I mean, you, ever, you ever look at you ever look at a lot of that didn't dawn on me magazine. until much later. That didn't dawn on me until <laughs> no, but it was, much later. <laughs> it was this yeah. ridiculous amount of training that no one could oh, possibly do. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to do chest for three hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Then I'm going to go home, take a nap, come back, and finish with tries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's a quick routine. That's just ninety minutes. Oh yeah, but, but people still have those problems now, Mike. Mike, people still have those problems now where. I mean, I go to the gym. I hit three to five moves. Period. That's a that's an entire workout. Yeah. I'm out of there. Sometimes less, depending on what the moves are. By the time I finished all of that, people are on their third or fourth chest exercise. Yeah, because that same yeah. bad information has just been passed down from one generation to the next, where people don't feel that. I mean, if you do three hard sets on the dips, why do you need to do anything else? Why Why do you even have the energy to do anything else? Yeah, in yeah, that category. That, that they yeah, they come well, from the era where know, chest day means I'm going to do every chest exercise that's out there today. <laughs> yeah. and well, and what's funny is I, you know, I grew up amongst that. I was a small dude, and I figured the only reason I was small is because my gym didn't have enough chest equipment, or I didn't have enough, <laughs> you know, exercises that I was doing. So one of the reasons I was so tore up by the time I was in my early 40s is because I did everything wrong. You know, with great enthusiasm, you know, because, I mean, I was a high-energy mistake maker. So it wasn't until being confronted with with that and not being willing to accept that, you know, at age, you know, we'll say, you know, 42, 43, that I was done, that's what led me to rings. Back when, you know, pre-CrossFit, um, nobody knew about rings. And I think right. it was Tyler Haas was the first guy to bring yeah. Yeah, that's plastic, right, yeah. relatively low low cost uh, rings to the marketplace. Right. I knew he about was. rings years earlier because uh, you know the late Larry Scott, you know, first Mister Olympia, would use rings, and if you were on his mailing list, he would try to sell you rings. They were they were steel gymnastic rings, and they were stupid expensive. You know, I never had the money for that, and I didn't quite understand what he was doing with them, but I was at least aware of them, and they were just, you know, sort of an esoteric thing. And, you know, most of us associated rings with gymnastics, and, well, gymnasts weren't quite human anyway. So it was kind of easy to blow all of that off. But it dawned on me that rings might accommodate all of the joint issues that I had. I mean, I had joint problems in my 20s. Doing just pull-ups on a bar hurt my wrists. I mean, I'm just... I'm a delicate guy, fellas. I, you know, what can I tell you? <laughs> um, so I, 
I spent the money on the rings. I got the ring. I was living in Vegas at the time, and I was so jazzed when these things showed up in the mail. I immediately took them to Gold's Gym. Now, a word of advice for anyone listening, if you haven't done anything on rings before, you may want to practice privately a few times (laughs) before you make your debut at a gym that was overrun with professional bodybuilders. Because I'm sure how how those ring pushes work out for you, Mike. (laughs) Oh man, Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, it it took a little while to sort of get the groove. But the interesting thing was, uh, the body figures things out fairly quickly. If you throw yourself into these situations, that's one skill I do have is enthusiasm, and it was an absolute life changing thing for me, guys. The relief I felt immediately. You know, from doing staple exercises, pull-ups, dips, ring push-ups, it was just like the muscles hurt, but not the joints. It was exactly how God intended, and I was one happy guy. And I just, I've stuck very closely with the ring subsequent to that. I mean, I've found ways to make those uh, exercises more challenging as as I've gotten stronger. Uh, Do you use a weight vest, Mike, to add resistance? all, All the time. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I'm I'm all a man at the end of the day. So yeah, I got to <laughs> strap and stuff on. Uh, and, and by man, I mean reckless. You know, I have to say, oh, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Don't. I'm not the only one. You know, but uh, I'll just admit to it. So the uh, yeah rings are because of the movement potential. You know, they're very joint friendly, but because of the movement potential, they're so variable. So you can tweak angles for days and, you know, find ways to sort of incrementally ramp up the uh, the difficulty and, and the perceived resistance. They're just a great tool. And, of course, you know, I've, I've traveled with mine. You know, they just, you know, go right into a suitcase. Uh, I've found playgrounds on the road, you know, tree branches. Uh, you know, occasionally I'll have to sh- shut the buckles into a hotel room door and, and just kind of use them like sort of a, a half-assed TRX. But they really, really work for me. And because I'm you know, reasonably uh, creative with respect to uh, you know, external resistance and so forth, I've been able to kind of have them grow with me, so to speak. Yeah, I think people sleep on rings, man. And, you know, again, focusing on other equipment, thinking that's the way to go. But it's, it's amazing that sometimes I can put my clients on rings for the first time or even they've been on there quite a few times. But every time they go back, they still realize, like, wow, these still suck, you know, because yeah. it's, it's, just, it, 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 it's a testament to what I always say is, like, if you can't move your body weight, you don't deserve to pick up the other weights. And so right. and, yeah, and you they realize, that. like, wow, when you. Yeah, the first time you you know you sit there and you do some ring push-ups and then go right into some ring dips right behind that, you know the game changes for you like that. And then there's all these big strong guys that probably scoff and laugh at that, like, well, man, look, you know, I did lift this and I bench press this, but you know, those are the main guys. Like, okay, I would love to see you do about three to five sets of ten of these ring dips. You know, since you know you got these big giant, you know, triceps or whatever, dude, and these yeah. pythons that you can say that you have, I would love to see you just see if you can make it through five rounds of this. You know, and you yeah, know, or even just especially you know, holding themselves up above the rings. I mean, I, exactly. If if you've used rings in a commercial gym, eventually the really big dudes are going to come over and see what's up, and yeah. I always say, hey, you know, try it out; it's really fun. And 
you know, they, they try, they, they fall to the floor and then they say, this is stupid, you know, and they go back and do more bench presses. But yeah. And what's amazing, uh, they sweat more from holding themselves up than actually just going through and lifting dumbbells, you know, or yeah. actually doing deadlifts. Just holding themselves in one spot, you know, they're sweating like a whore in church, you know, this is crazy. Yeah. Man. Uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> The yeah, and, and the other thing that I really like about it is, you know, I, I think all good training is, is core training. As much as I hate to use that word because it's such a cliche, but it's true. Rings are just, you know, like kettlebells. There's just certain tools that really seem to get the body, you know, doing what the body should be doing, which is talking to its, you know, getting all of those those muscle areas to talk to each other, you know, and and to work as a unit. And that that has had uh, it has a lot of carryover for me with uh, some of the bending things that I do. And I mean, I'm I'm not I don't hold myself out there as like a real serious bender. I've got a lot of friends that are you know really you know world class at that. But my experience in bending is really more uh, for training purposes. And I have found that through bending, I've really under come to understand what it is to you know, have maximum engagement, you know, from head to toe. Um, and I, as much as I got some of that from rings, it was bending that really was sort of like, you know, the, the frosting on that particular cake. So, you know, by bending, uh, I've actually gotten, you know, better and more in control with my ring work. How did, how did you start that, Mike? Did you start with nails? <laughs> um, I... <laughs> I started entirely by accident. I uh, I signed up to do a research trip. Basically, I had uh, I had contacted Dennis Rogers, who uh, you know, yeah. is probably the most visible of the people oh, yeah. who do feats of strength. And yeah. anybody who's who's bent stuff on Oprah, you know, that's that that's a level <laughs> of, uh, of success high level. and magnitude yeah. that the rest of us put together aren't going to mm-hmm. touch. Yeah, so you know, Dennis yeah, he's right here in my very backyard. well known, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, you know, I had known of him for a long time, and I was intrigued by Dennis because he's you know he's a smaller guy, he's older than me, and you know, as the first human to bend a crescent wrench and tap, there were just questions I had, you know, and they were all sort of based around how do you do that and your body just not break apart. You know, because, you know, I was a reasonably, you know, this was, I'm 46 at this point. This is an 08. And, you know, I'm a strong-ish guy, but structurally, you know, I know what it's like to experience joint pain just from routine training. You know, what what does it even mean to be able to bend a crescent wrench? I had no frame of reference for that. So I wanted to get together with Dennis and just talk training. You know, how do you train to be Dennis Rogers? And uh, because I've done a lot of private training with some famous martial artists, you know, basically showing up at their house and, you know, learning what makes them tick, I uh, I contacted Dennis, you know, with that premise in mind. And he said, well, I'm actually doing an event in a, in a few months where some of my protégés will be here. And if you want to just talk to people who do this, there'll be a whole room full. And I said, oh, that sounds awesome. So August of uh, 08, I flew to Houston, Texas. Uh, didn't know yep. Sincere was there. I would have uh, looked up. And <laughs> uh, spent several days just, you know, nose to nose with these guys. And it's it's one thing to see somebody bend a horseshoe on YouTube. It's another, you know, when it's 18 inches from your face. And I was so captivated 
buy that, uh, that I, I started to want that. Now, Dennis uh, suggested some things for me to try uh, during those days, and I tried a few things, and I, and I sort of stumbled through them. You know, I, I bent the horseshoe. It wasn't a big one. I bent a nail. It wasn't a big one. Uh, bent a steel bar. It wasn't a big one, but it was enough. You know, I just, I touched it a little bit. And meanwhile, I'm hanging out with these guys that are doing just insane feats. And it was so attractive to me. You know, in a lot of that, I think, had to do with where I was at the time, sort of professionally. I was, I, I had been in the bodyguard game a couple of years. I was, I had grown kind of indifferent to that. Uh, it's one of those things that seems cool at the time, but then the reality of that work, you know, just travel and the fatigue and not being in control of your own schedule and being away from family. I was, I was ready for something to come along and, and to really grab me. And that was it. So, uh, it was from that point on that I started developing my own repertoire, uh, which is not so rooted in pure strength. Uh, exploits as much as those uh, gentlemen do it, but more sort of, uh, well, some people would just refer to as bad life choices. I, I do a lot of kind of body toughness feats. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. I think, what I've become, you know, best known for. And it's just a way, because as, as I sort of transitioned professionally out of, uh, you know, the whole security part of my resume, and just working with people, in primarily, you know, on the mental side of things, that um, it becomes important to me to do some of the things I do, not because uh, I want to show off or not because I'm an entertainer, because I'm either of those things, but it's it's validation of my methods. You know, if I hold myself out as someone who can take you to a different place with respect to your mental capabilities, and I can't manifest that on my own, then it's not real. You know, then then it's just theoretical. I mean, there are people who know things about things, but can they do it or have they done it? And I feel as though it's not valid if I can't do it. And the mind is something I can continue to develop and cultivate despite, you know, my relative maturity. If I was solely focused on being strong, you know, that curve is, is going to start working in a direction that's not so favorable. Uh, I mean, I still think that there's more ground for me to gain strength-wise, but with respect to what I can take, withstand, endure, there, the sky's the limit. You know, I'm, I'm still just scratching the surface of that. So for me, the feats are, you know, yeah, if, if I'm speaking publicly, they can make a very striking visual metaphor. They can punctuate a point very effectively, but uh, more than that, you know, if if I'm encouraging people to to dig deep, you know, do scary things, you know, really explore where their limits are, I have to do that too, and that's that's what the feats have become about for Mike Gillette. What is, what is the what is the mental? How do you how do you present the mental side of stuff? Is it a combination of you're doing these feats of strength? How does that whole work? Oh, you mean like work? when I'm working with people? Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, in that case, um, it's uh, it's just the the vocabulary of techniques that I've I've developed over you know many years of of being me uh, in a variety of professional contexts. So there 
there were techniques I was introduced to in the military, uh, police training, in the martial arts, and that ultimately led me to additional research because when I started doing training exclusively, you know, I, I left law enforcement in 2001 and uh, started doing nothing but training from that point onward. Uh, some of the training projects I was immediately involved with were huge. They were, you know, sort of 9-11 related. So, for example, I was working with the airline industry quite a bit. Uh, it's one thing for me to teach flight attendants how to take out a terrorist, but if you can't contextually get uh, to the place where you're okay doing that, uh, where you could actually access those skills under the duress of a real situation, then those skills are we don't know if you've actually got them because, you know, we, we need you to get to the place where it's okay for you to do this. You got into this job because you're a customer service professional. Now I'm asking you to possibly kill somebody in your workplace. Your workplace happens to be an airplane. So um, I started looking really hard at some of the things that I'd been teaching, you know, law enforcement, military personnel and trying to adapt them to people who had to do very dangerous things or very high-level things but weren't coming from that background to start with, which was a real challenge. And as I developed that and sort of expanded my my reach training-wise through other, uh, again, kind of 9-11-related uh, training programs, I developed a lot of uh, content that, was uh, that is still sort of in the uh, in the training literature for uh, security personnel in uh, mass casualty uh, settings or potential mass casualty settings, uh, amusement parks, uh, malls, uh, sports arenas, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of my work became about getting people okay with the idea of doing things that are scary. And as I developed those things, I realized that a lot of what I was creating was essentially a an alternative means of peak performance training. You know, we, we think about peak performance and we, we typically think about uh, sports performance. There's a lot of people who have been working with, with athletes. Uh, the discipline referred to as sports psychology has, has been referred to for, you know, decades. So it's kind of that, but it's kind of beyond that. Uh, and it's my... Uh, my own take on those types of exercises and exercises that I've just studied or been trained in by others that I've sort of adapted to, you know, help people be the person they need to be in a particular circumstance. You know, uh, I refer to it as developing a situational personality. You know, in different settings, we need to be different versions of ourselves. You know, who do, how do, who do you I train someone? Be? How do you train someone, Mike, though, to be able to recall their training and apply it in such a high-stress situation where you're, you may just go completely blank? You may not even know what your name is under such a high-stress situation. Well, so, yeah, that, how do you make that uh, familiar? Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's basically being able. The easiest way is to control the training space. So if um, if you're activity, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether you're a SWAT officer or you're a gymnast, you know, there there is a definite environment where that's going to play out. So if we don't take that environment into account, we don't mimic aspects of it, uh, 
you know, we won't be successful. So there are environments that you can't really mimic in terms of, you know, duplicating it. So you, you break down what those environments consist of in terms of, you know, stimulus or cognitive demand, you know, the distractions, you know, the, the, the rapid decision making that would be required of you to uh, function effectively in that setting. So if you can distill settings or environments down in, in that context, if that makes sense, if you can create not uh, by making it look exactly like, you know, because you know, where is the SWAT team going to operate? Who knows? Many different physical environments, but the processes that they'll have to engage with mentally in order to prevail are going to be common. So they have to be able to handle, you know, confusing stimulus, uh, di- diminished perception because of, of light, sound, those types of things, and be able to you know, access their training, uh, as we say, under those circumstances. So we can, we can do some of that, that, uh, it may not actually look like what the street is, but it carries along with it all of the complexities or the, uh, the variables that make it more difficult, if that makes sense. And, and right. that's another thing that you can do with athletes that's fairly simple. Uh, so there's there's the externally imposed variables that you have to allow the the athlete or the client to problem solve, and then there's uh, virtual practice. And virtual practice is not me talking about uh, using technology; it's teaching athletes how to create uh, their optimal performance space, uh, how to mentally rehearse effectively, how to get better at doing that because the same neural pathways, uh, you know, that are, are accessed through physical practice. If you really have a good detailed, sophisticated process for simulating that same thing mentally, uh, you're, you're still engaging the brain in the same way. And of course, uh, you know, your brain is always open. It's free. You know, there's, there's no cost for training time. You know, there's no sitting around waiting in line for equipment. You always have access to that. So it's it's a combination, ideally, uh, of doing things with the group or with the individual that you know, sort of force them to prevail in uh, in circumstances where they have to contend with uh, variables beyond their control, and then also to teach them how to control themselves you know, mentally, whilst dealing with those variables. So it's it's kind of a two halves uh, that you know, are are combined. And if if we're talking about people that function in, in a group setting, uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, team workshops you know, across a, a, a variety of sports that uh, are more designed to create a common language for that type of training, so that everybody understands what everyone is trying to uh, accomplish in the context of, you know, on the field, on the court, as well as, you know, individually in their own minds. And for the coach then to be able to, I mean, I may just come in for one or two workshops and then it's up to the coach to sort of perpetuate that mental work. So there's a, there's a lot of different layers to it and it all just kind of varies with the uh, sport. Different sports have their own, 
complexities, culture issues, and of course, available resources. You know, have have a lot to do with just how deep you get with some of that stuff. So yeah. essentially, um, you know, what you're teaching them is, and with those circumstances that are pretty much, you know, external out of their control, basically they're, they need to be coached to be two people at one time. Basically, you're that person that's in that moment where something's happening right now. But at the same time, you can step outside of yourself and kind of coach yourself through it and become this other person who's kind of on the outside looking in like, hey, you've been here mentally, visually, you know, we've been here before. So that I think that kind of helps people to not panic in those situations where they just freeze. And so yeah, many people that's, don't like, that's a lot of people exactly don't want to right. go that's, there. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people don't want to go there because a lot of times they don't want to look at situations like that. They don't like to look at closed circuit TV situations where there's violence happening or something like that because, oh my God, that's just gory or whatever else. But then when something like that happens in real life, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. You know, they're surprised. Whereas, you know, if you kind of already go there mentally, just visually and see it actually happening and seeing all the dynamics of what made that situation happen and how people responded to it. Yeah, you you weren't exactly there, but you kind of have an idea of what you can do. Right. No, I I think that's a that's a, a really good observation. The the idea is always to create at least the perception that you've been here before, okay? Mm-hmm. And when you were here, we worked through it, which means you can work through it for real. And what what's kind of um, sort of trail on on what you're saying? The the scary factor, the fear factor, exists for everybody. It just sort of uh, plays out differently. Now, if if we're working with what I would just consider like regular people, uh, people that don't have uh, you know like an extraordinary job, but may you know, for for whatever reason have to contend with something extraordinary, uh, they're typically afraid of of the obvious thing, you know, the, the violence, you know, the dark, the the thing that goes bump in the night, the uh, the warrior class, you know, the action guys, uh, there, there's a fear also, but that fear is making a mistake, looking bad, you know, not being a superstar all the time because, you know, frequently these guys are superstars all the time and putting them in situations where they have to problem solve, you know, is they have to get past sort of the, the ego-based fear of those situations, you know, uh, and, you know, i will frequently tell people, you know, I'm not interested in how good you are on your best day. I, I want to know how good you can be on your worst day because that's that's probably a better reflection of how things are actually going to go. If you can if you can have everything sort of going against you and you still work through and solve the problem, then great. You know, let's if we know we can nail this on a bad day, then you know those good days are going to be cake. Right. So you know, being able to uh, introduce the things that uh, can can lead to mistakes, you know, in in the safe confines of the training environment, those are to be sought out. Those are to be cultivated. Right. And I think a lot of times people really want to be in those situations where they feel like, okay, I'm good at this. I want to stay in this situation. I think a lot of times that can really get them in trouble. And whether right. it's just training in the gym or you know training at the firing range or something like that, or you know, say, or even just doing war games and getting ready to be deployed mm-hmm. or something like they want to go with what's familiar and like, okay, I know I'm good at this. Let's do more of that. Instead of like, you and know, we what, all want to be a superstar. Oh yeah. That's just Instead human. of going like, I want to do what I suck at and I want to get better at that. No one wants to admit that they suck at anything. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just even saying it out loud feels wrong. Yeah. You know, for, for <laughs> right. a lot of people like that, it's like, nope, not right. me. I'm amazing. 
Yeah, and it's always amazing. Like even if when you're teaching a course and you go around, you ask, you know, if you've gone over something, you ask everyone, like, all right, does anyone have any questions? <laughs> and no one raises their hand or says anything. And you, it's amazing. Like, come on, I know someone's thinking something. There's just yeah. no way that you got all of that, especially because this right. is pretty much something new to you. And no, but no one wants to seem like they don't know, you know, or they want exactly. to feel like they're going to ask something stupid, you know, <laughs> yeah. until. They try to perform it and then they look stupid. You know, it's like, well, that could have been avoided if you just asked the question. <laughs> yeah, know, really. very true. And and there's an interesting flip side to that uh, phenomenon. And it, I find it, uh, you know, primarily on on the mental side. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, I'll, if I come in and I'm I'm discussing, you know, mental training concepts. Uh, you know, someone is eventually going to share with me whether you know during or after. Yeah, I, uh, I I know about that stuff. You know, I went to a seminar. I read a book. I read an article online. And I'll say, okay, cool. So so you're familiar with these concepts. Yep, yep, I am. It's a great. So how are you incorporating them? Right. Crickets. Right. <laughs> and th- this is such a weird realm of training. Mental training, because you you assimilate it, you know, I, I convey it to you intellectually. So you hear it, you sort of process it as you're hearing it, you understand it. Okay, got it. But even though it's conveyed that way or it's communicated that way, it still requires the same application that deadlifts do. If you're not doing it, you don't have it. You know, and right. that's, that's, that's a phrase I, I ret- find myself returning to frequently, which, you know, you can say you know the solution, but if you're not implementing the solution, you don't actually know the solution. You know, you know of it. Know of it, yeah. You know? exactly. It's like you can know of deadlifts, but if you're not deadlifting, then you're not the de- you know a guy who or or a girl who does deadlifts. Right. So you know when you're talking to people who actually do deadlifts, you have to shut up because you're not actually doing. It. You know, it's it's right. great that you understand, you know, <laughs> a certain you know theoretical frameworks for training, but if you're not doing them, you don't know. You know yeah, that's the osmosis living. He's like, I'm just absorbing, yeah. I'm good. I'm just taking yeah. all the data I mean, in, I'm good. I'm a supercomputer, I can do it. I, I own a cookbook, so. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, like, it's, it's like people no who watch the UFC, it's like people kicking back watching the UFC that are going, what, why is he doing that? He needs to do the arm bar, he should have yeah. done a takedown here. And they've never trained. Yeah. Forget about yeah. being in an actual fight. Yeah. They've never yeah. even oh, trained. Okay, tap out shirt. Yeah. yeah, let me just repeat <laughs> all the phrases that I hear a lot. Let's see. Um, rear naked oh, man, choke. We should do that. Um, you know, yeah. Darce choke. Why didn't he do that? Like, dude, can you yeah. can you do that? Like, like, bro, well, you pretty much every fighter. Choke, yeah. Every, every professional fighter I've ever met has always has always has a story of them hanging out somewhere. They're at Starbucks and some jack off comes in and goes, hey, oh, hey, oh, man, dude. I watched your last fight. And I think you made a mistake in round three. It'll be some guy. Whose gut is so big that he hasn't seen his feet in ten years, and he's never been in any kind of combative situation. Period. Yet yeah. he somehow has the gall to walk up to a professional fighter <laughs> and give them advice. And anyone who, yeah, yeah I don't think they had to pick your game plan. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if you've even held pads for a professional fighter, you realize real quick the difference between a professional fighter and someone who might be a good street fighter or just yep. he's, he's good. Or, he's or good with his class. for a couple yeah. of years in the backyard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, I think MMA has a disproportionate amount of uh, 
overly knowledgeable fans. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. Just like everybody knows what the football coach should have done. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I come from I come yeah. from a profession that's also a spectator sport, law enforcement. Oh, you know, yeah. and, and thanks to dash cams and, and chess video and all that, yeah, everybody right, know what right. they should have done or they shouldn't have done this because X, Y, Z, really. And, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and we're off to the races. Yeah, but that's, I think we're such a uh, sort of a, a bystander culture now, you know, thanks yes. to YouTube. You know, it's it's like we we have access to everything, so the way that we access it is just sort of superficially, you know, just right. little clips of this and that. And we still think we got it. Well, the, yeah. Yeah, the issue is people don't. still people still think that seeing is believing. It's like, okay, instead yeah. of asking the questions, like, well, what do we know for sure? And, you yeah. know, that's always right. telling, especially when right. you start talking about, like, even these dash cam situations or whatever, people always ask me, well, Sincere, what do you think? I'm like, well, what do we know for sure? Well, didn't you see what yeah. happened? I'm like, yeah, I saw I saw 15 seconds of some real crappy video from somebody's crappy cell phone, and <laughs> yeah. I don't know what yeah, happened. Yeah, the situation that happened. That may have been playing out for 15 exactly. minutes. Where's the audio? Right. I'm like, I didn't right. hear anything. Yeah. I'm I'm just watching something. I'm watching yeah. a silent movie for 15 seconds. Yeah. You know, so it's not telling me much. So it's not telling yeah. you. Much. So we can't draw conclusions. Yeah, not all that different from the MMA situation too, because yeah. you know when 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 that that fighter is actually in there. And right. they are, uh, you know, diminished ability to perceive stimuli, you know, fatigue, right. one eye swelling shut, the crowd yep. is loud, I can't hear my corn, you know, all of those things. Yeah. 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 It's, it's all of And minus you got, three, you got about five million people looking, you know, watching you at the same time. You yeah. Know, whether, yeah. You know, so that, exactly. the cameras that are everywhere. So, you know, you have to, you're pressured to perform. It's like, gosh, man, the whole world's watching me right now. <laughs> oh yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's a real stand five people watch to, to solve for sure. Exactly. Yeah, people people don't even want to go to the gym because I don't I don't like working out the gym because people are looking at me. So if you think you have an issue with that, you know who are you to <laughs> right. question the fighter that has right. seven million people watching him live? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm really I'm yeah, really impressed with yeah I'm really impressed with any professional fighter who has the ability to keep his or her nerves in check just walking out mm-hmm. to the ring. Because exactly. I've been to fights live before, and I'm nervous for the fighter exactly. as I yeah. see them walking out. I'm in the audience watching, and I'm, my, my heart rate's going up, you know, right. <laughs> thinking about right. what they have to do. I can't even imagine how they feel. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's a really good point. You know, I was uh, actually in your fair city about a week and a half ago. I was going through uh, some new training uh, just because uh, I, I, I think it's interesting. I was actually going through a corner man or cut man training. Uh, with a guy who was a uh, cut man in the UFC for a number of years, who was uh, mentored by uh, Stitch Duran, and you know, basically, it, it's a very specific venue style of first day. And one of the things that he was sharing with me, uh, because he, he's worked a lot of uh, pay per views and, and uh, the Ultimate Fighter TV series and so forth, he said the the vibe in the locker room, you know, for reasons that you just described. I mean, the the level of things that you could focus on to create anxiety, I mean, take your pick. Oh, you know, yeah. forget the fight. You know, yeah. uh, what's your record right now? Is this your last chance to fight in the UFC based yeah. on how this goes? Yeah. Are you in line to, like, lose an endorsement? You know, right. like, right. are you behind on house payment? I mean, you yeah. know, then the cameras, then, the, you know, all of that. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a level of, you know, to be successful in the context of that setting, you know, yeah. it takes tremendous focus. And, no and, and I think we've all seen examples where that focus has been maintained 
and the success that, that corresponds with that, as well as people who weren't able to master just the mental side of all of that and, and right. how that typically will go. Yeah, no it's, doubt. it's fascinating. I, I think that, um, you know, any sport, you know, if you sort of get beyond the trappings uh, of the specific sport, you know, whether we're watching tennis or MMA or even chess, for me as, as a spectator, that's, that's what I hone in on. That's what I'm most interested in. You know, who has really got themselves under control? You know, right. and, and how is that contributing to how things are playing out? I mean, even someone like a, like the presidential debates were on last night, even, even the stress of that, the candidates before exactly. they have to come out on stage and debate with True. each other and millions yeah, of people yeah. once you get home. Yeah, that's, that's a situation uh, that, that's, where it's just that's like getting, the, you know, uh, one, one to go sideways on, uh, tangentially speaking, but yeah, tremendous because if you, you've got two fighters essentially coming in evenly matched, they're both going for the top, you know, the, the belt is, right. is vacant right now. And they, they are coming in, you know, the, the Vegas odds have them at a statistical dead heat. That's, yeah. that's crazy yeah. pressure. And, uh, all, all you know, your family or friends on, on, on who you're a fan of, you know, either, uh, your candidate did really well or, or did not. Um, right, right. And which is a, another interesting variable. Um, uh, <laughs> everybody's candidate won. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I those, don't know how that polls. happened. I was like, really? I'm like, really? Did you watch the same debate? I'm just like, come on. I'm like, yeah, honestly, no one won. Watching the debate and their candidate won. Well, look, it's, it's really like this. I mean, are, are these debates really going to make a difference in terms of who someone's going to pick at this point? I mean, I, let, I think it's safe to say that every that voter hard. knows who they're going to pick at this point. No one got swayed last night by that debate. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, I, I, I think that's accurate. I, I, you know, but it, it's so. I mean, we we could vote just, today, and it's going to be the same outcome as November. I mean, if anything, it just here. it just validated whoever they chose. You know, more like yes, yeah, that's yeah. the reason why I'm going with this person. Yeah, like, I, I think <laughs> I think what we got from that debate was. Exactly that. Uh, it, yeah, it re- I got they both reinforced their own persona. They both right. reinforced what you like about them or don't like about them. Right. They were right. both right. very much the the version of themselves that you know, we most typically associate with them. And you just know, like you were saying, Mike, about them, about you comparing them to fighters, you know, you can honestly see when they first came out, they had a plan. But you know, yeah. but as soon as someone got hit, hit in the face, you know, with one comment or a fact. That fan, I mean, that plan just fell, and all yeah. you saw them go yeah. back to being who they were, you know. So, yeah, like the fighters, it's like you have a plan, you do in your camp. Hey, this is what I'm going to do, and then yeah. you don't. Expect, and the other fighter does one thing that you didn't expect, and then it just comes unraveled, and you go back to doing what you're familiar with and what you're comfortable with. That, and that's, that's what happened. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we default to training. You know, as a great <laughs> philosopher, Mike Tyson once said, "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face." Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, we can Drew take it to a much lower. We can take it to a much less significant context of a trainee. Going oh, well, to the well when you said plan. lower, I thought you were like, you know, <laughs> lower brow. And it's like, do we really want to do that? I mean, like we've had this. Really yeah, we, we could do that too. No, but I mean, just the context of someone going to a gym for a workout, they have a plan as you should. There's no, it's a waste of time just to go to the gym and like show up and see what you're going to do. But you have a plan of what you're going to do. And let's say it doesn't go as well as you hoped. Someone who's a professional trainee, if you will, someone who's been doing it for a long time, they kind of understand the ebbs and flows of training. Someone who's yeah. more of an amateurish mindset is going to be that person that throws a fit. You know, the bar doesn't come off as easily as they thought they would on the deadlift. They're, God 
damn it! You know, yeah. Or stomp it around. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they keep on trying, and it keeps getting worse each time. It's like, look, man, it's not happening today. It's okay. Yeah. You know, just, you'll live to see another day, man. Just relax. Unless you break your back as you keep trying to do this. <laughs> yeah, very true. It, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how um, I think the the newer you are at at all of that, the more likely you are to sort of be really emotionally rooted in in how it's going. Right. Whereas you know those those of us that have you know been in the trenches a while, it's just kind of like, well, uh, okay, that's uh, that's not working today. Or I mean, Steve, just, uh, Steve, hey, Steve it's just working, it's working a good better point. than I thought, you know. And right. it's just it, right. it's it, when it's good, it's good, and when it isn't good, it's still good because you're there, you know. And it's you're always I, learning I something the, either way. Exactly. Hopefully, you know, you're well, learning. Something yeah, from yeah, it. exactly. Hopefully, if, if that, you're that's, smart, that's yeah. very true. <laughs> yeah, right. that that's that's the the ideal that uh, I think we're all probably going for, or that you know we want for the people that we work with. You know, right. is, is you know the I think. I think what it comes down to is, process. I think what it comes down to is to not be married to a result or an idea, but to just court it, yeah. just date it, yeah. just realize that you might have to break up. Something they may some, say something <laughs> stupid. Something might go wrong where you're like, you know what? F this. I'm out of here. Let me move on to something yeah. else. You yeah. know, when people get married to an idea, like, well, you know, it's not working, but I'm gonna keep. I'm just gonna go go with it. You know, because yeah. you know, I don't want to deal with the shame of letting it go and thinking I'm a quitter. <laughs> you know. Right. So, right. <laughs> Well, and and that's uh, when when you when you haven't had somebody mentor you in in all of this, it's very easy to become married to the the plan, you know, the schematic, and because you don't have the basis for understanding the role of the plan or the role of the program, and you know the the you know the ongoing process that it is, you know, and that it's just there to facilitate, you know, forward steps. And so I think when when your workout plan is perceived to basically be an ongoing report card, you know, that that's <laughs> right. a recipe for frustration. Right, right. Because you don't really understand you uh and no one has told you not to get so wrapped around, you know, if you can't quite get through this or or you know, the percentages have to be adjusted uh because of of how things actually are in the reality that is your body today, um, that's okay. That's the reality of training in the real world. You know, and you know, the idea, you know, because you know, we we sell this marketing, you know, we buy this plan, and you know, it's supposed to work this way. Well, I'm on this 90 right. day plan. Well, well guaranteed um, results in 90 days. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, say what adjust it to 91 days and and call today good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I hate when I hear 90-day goals or 90-day plans because just to cultivate a new habit takes 90 days. People will yeah, say, oh, to yeah. cultivate a new habit, it takes 7 to 10 days, which is laughable. I mean, it takes 90 days to create a new habit, yeah. and it takes probably a week to break that habit. You know, That's how quickly it can go. So 90 right. days, you're just getting started. So the fact that people oh, think yeah. they're going to make these magical physique transformations or they're going to develop elite levels of strength in 90 days, I mean, who are you kidding? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's interesting you mentioned that when, when I was much younger, uh, I would periodically, you know, come across, you know, as, as the literature started to change and as, you know, the internet started to, uh, 
become more prevalent and I was able to get access to, to actual training information as opposed to, you know, regurgitated uh, bodybuilding articles. And, and I would, I would see this, this point start to, to crop up uh, more and more frequently, which was that, um, you know, it takes a long time to get strong. You know, I mean, to get really strong. You know, the guys who are really, really strong have been at it for a long time. And right. that, to me, didn't initially make sense simply because, um, well, aren't you stronger when you're younger? I didn't understand, you know, the the idea that repetition, you know, improves neurological efficiency and, and on and on we go, you know, and just, you know, honing technique and how a power lifter can have 10 years in the game and he's still going to a Louis Simmons weekend seminar to hone you know, one of the lifts that he's been doing for over 10 years. You know, I, I just right. didn't have a frame of reference for that. So I think a lot of people don't get that, uh, you know, this is like playing the violin. It just looks different, but it's the same thing. Right. Yeah. Now, Mark Phillippe once told me that he didn't reach his peak level of strength until he was in his 40s. And this is a guy yeah. who was probably started working out seriously when he was a teenager playing high school football. Even as yeah. a strongman competitor, it wasn't until, I think he said mid-40s, that was at his peak of his abilities. That's awesome. Yeah, what, and what, a, what a great uh, resource he is to the community. But that, that's a really oh, yeah, good example with that. Yeah. Incredible. So, I mean, so someone who's 25 complaining that they're not as strong as they would like to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they just yeah. Need to, they've been working be out for two years and they haven't yet. hit all their goals yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like easy. Spark but but also what I like about what Mark there. said is, no, a lot of what I like, what I also like about what Mark said is a lot of guys often use being 40 as an excuse. It's like, well, I'm 40 now, you know, so I'm not as strong as I used to be or I can't it's do like what the, I used to be able to do. So you probably like won't be able to ever. <laughs> but those people were never impressive, though. The, the, the part they leave yeah. out is that they were never impressive. They weren't impressive at 25. They weren't impressive at 30. Right. They've never been impressive. It's not because they're 40 yeah. that they're not impressive. They've never been impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, imagine me. I'm one year away from the senior menu at IHOP. You know, the people <laughs> who I grew up with, um, you know, the vast majority of them have not seen the inside of the gym in a really long time. And it's always right, it's right. always the same rationale. Well, you know, yes. at our age, um, you know, it's your age. You know, I hate it. Our ages are apparently different. It. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's because like, we have matching you know, numbers doesn't mean we have the same age, buddy. That's the difference. There we go. I may be stealing that. I, I don't like when people even say, oh, I'm strong for my age. I go, no, no, no. There's, you're either strong yeah. or you're not. I don't care about your age. You're either strong yeah. or you're not. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah if the average yeah, person at your age is 50 pounds overweight and can't touch their toes, it doesn't take much to be strong at that age. But that's that's the wrong reference point, frame of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad, that's a bad curve. It's a, <laughs> you know, I, you're I, setting I, the bar really low there. You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you can get out of bed and walk. Can, the fact that you can walk out the front door and go to the mailbox and get your mail, and, and that puts you ahead of most people in your age bracket, that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not because you're doing anything impressive. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's just because you've you've adopted a, a set of standards that sucks. Right, right. Yeah. No, but I think people get really impatient with a lot of stuff too. Just going back to these ninety day programs, someone is. We always see people on a fat loss program where they lose ten pounds in the first week or two, and then it becomes five pounds, and it, then it becomes to what they feel is a screeching halt. It really isn't. You lose yeah. a pound or two, and so forth. I mean, if you lose, a, you lose what a, happened? 
I'm like, I mean, you're if you lose a hundred pounds in two, if you lose a hundred pounds in two years, you're more likely to keep that hundred pounds off than if you lost it in let's say three, five, six months doing some drastically unhealthy nutrition health program. Can't even call it a nutrition. Oh yeah, look at look at the stories that are coming out of the you know like the fat loss television show. You know where you know it it happens really fast and how many people have you know rebounded you know right back to right. where they were. Oh yeah. You know and and that even gets back to you know the whole issue well the, the of, faster of you achieve habit. anything. Yeah, the faster you achieve anything, the faster you lose it. So if you get really strong, let's say <laughs> you put lottery. 50 pounds on your... Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's a perfect example. But, I mean, just you put 50 pounds on your squat in a couple of weeks. Let's just say that happens. That's, that's rare, but let's just say theoretically it happens. Your, the, the, your ability to hold on to that is going to be very difficult. Right. Man, what a... Uh, what a, a fascinating uh, assemblage of topics we we've not only just talked about, but basically solved for everyone today. It's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what we do. We solve problems on the show. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, hey, man, great having you on. And what do you what do you have coming up? Anything you want to plug? you have any courses coming up or new products? Uh, um, well, what I've, uh, what I've got that most people seem to be responding to is uh, I've got a, a book, it's uh, fairly inexpensive. It's on Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. It's called Mind Boss, and it's basically, uh, well, you've got you've got a book that's basically, you know, how to be awesome and quit whining. I, I know that's not the title. Uh, yeah, but that that's a good title, of, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, maybe that's we can do that up. one together. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it's sort of uh, self-help through the prism of, of kickassery. You know, that's your book, and that's it's mine is kind of my own uh, uh, version of that. You know, I think oh, that, you know, the essentials of self-improvement are largely universal truths. And, uh, you know, we sort of gravitate to the delivery system that sort of, you know, is most relatable to us or is most interesting to us. And uh, Mind Boss is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty quick trip, you know, from wherever a person is now to, you know, be, being awesome, getting stuff done, and, and being accountable for all of it. And for my friends who don't necessarily like to read, I've got a video-based version of that. It's called uh, Psychology Strength. If you go to thestrengthpsychology.com, strengthpsychology.com is the wow. site. And uh, that's a, uh, a either a, a direct digital download version or there's a physical DVD product option as well. Uh, we did talk about ring training earlier in our conversation. I actually have the only... I think purely strength-focused book on that topic called Rings of Power, and you can find that at DragonDoor.com or Amazon. And uh, you know, rings are cheap, versatile, and you can get real awesome real fast with those. So those would be some places I direct folks. Also, MikeGillette.com is just a, a great place to uh, get a lot of uh, free content, encouragement. I, I basically will harass you uh, to the point that you become awesome, even if you're not sure you want to do that on your own. It will be inevitable. It's also a great place to uh, find my various uh, social media channels. So MikeJoyette.com is where all that happens. Fantastic, man. Great having you back on. I'm sure we'll have you back again well, soon. Good to be with you guys. You're awesome. I love the podcast. Thanks a lot, Mike. You take care. You have a good day.
That's your cue to get off if you haven't gotten off yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Here I go now. Sometimes people don't know what to do, so I'm just giving you a little bit. <laughs> are, are the guys still there? Should, should I say something? <laughs> How did that go? Now we're still recording, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> stick around, Mike. Out, Mike. We'll, we'll wrap up. Yes, anyway, folks, use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off everything at MikeMahler.com. All of my supplements are fully in stock, so load up while you can. And also, don't forget to become a Patreon subscriber so that you can have access to our premium episodes. Yep, like the one that's coming up next week. So there you go. And also, head over to NewWarriorTrain.com. Use that same coupon code. Get 10% off everything over there. And, you know, like the man said, go to patreon.com slash LLA podcast. Become a Patreon subscriber. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this week. We'll catch you guys, catch all our premium subscribers next week. Everyone else, see you in about two weeks. So don't be everyone right. else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, folks, take care. Take care, everyone. Bye.